Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. This past week, I asked us as a church to participate in a time of prayer and fasting together. And each day, I shared a passage of scripture and a prayer prompt to guide us as we focused our prayers together. Now, you can rest easy. I'm not going to publicly call roll and ask if you fasted or if you didn't. We'll get to that at the end. Um, But... uh, (laughs) It is not something that you do on my account or just because the pastor said it is between you and the Lord. Uh, He has called me to be your shepherd, and as a shepherd, I guide the sheep, but I can't force the sheep. And so I guide you, and I offer these ways for us as a church to come closer together. But again, I I can't force anyone to do that. But I, I do want you to be keeping this idea of fasting in your mind because if you look... When we jump back into the book of Matthew, again, providentially, the first half of our section today, we're going to be talking about fasting. The Lord is asked particularly about should his disciples fast. But before we get there, I do sincerely hope that you did chose or did choose to participate in some way because it is vitally important for us as a church to fast, but also for you as an individual to do and participate in that Practice. And not only do I think it's important, we're going to see today that Jesus says it's important too. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take time and explain what Jesus is teaching here about fasting. And why Jesus shows us that it's not necessarily a suggested practice for those who follow him, but a practice that all Christians should and are expected to partake in. And then we're going to look at a second passage that keeps following because these two incidences happen sort of at the same time. And the second half, we're going to see a very familiar story that you may be uh, used to hearing, and it's about the woman with the issue of blood. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and take your Bible or your device and get to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 26. So Matthew 9, verses 14 through 26, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's word, I will read it aloud to us. This is what the word of the Lord said. It says, then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And so Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will then fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved." 
And verse 18 says, As he was telling these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. And just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. And Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. And then when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw that the flute players and a crowd, they were lamenting loudly. And so he said, leave, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took, by, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And then the news of this spread throughout the whole area. Let's pray. Father, we are coming to you this morning needing your touch. We are coming to you this morning needing your instruction needing your correction, needing your grace to be poured out into our lives because in so many ways we have fallen short of you. Show us your power this morning. Show us your glory this morning. Show us our need for you just as we see these people coming to you in this passage. May we too have that same need for you and that same pursuit of you as we walk through this life together. Be glorified in everything that is spoken this morning, and may it all bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we jump back into this book, we, we've taken about, uh, let's see, four and a half-ish weeks off for being in the book of Matthew. So I do want to give us just a small little snippet of context for what is happening today and how we've gotten here. If we remember in the early chapters of Matthew, as we have all just celebrated, Jesus comes to earth as a baby through the power of the Holy Spirit, causing Mary to be with child. And you notice that the only other time we hear about Jesus as a young adolescent is when Mary and Joseph lose him and they find him in the synagogue being about his father's business. We're not given very much uh, context or information about Jesus's life up to this point. And then all of a sudden in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is in front of us. And he's preaching in the wilderness, the wilderness of Judea. And as we know, his message is this, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then we see this quarrel happen in the middle of chapter 3. And it's going to come into play with us today. This quarrel is happening between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so this, what we read about today is just sort of this continuation or this overlapping, just constant bickering and back and forth arguing over religious practices, over repentance and baptism. And again, we're going to see this come into play when they start arguing or asking questions about fasting. And then from chapters 4 on till today, we see Jesus presented, baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and we see his ministry begin. We read through and, and learned about the Sermon on the Mount, and then now we are seeing him preaching and teaching and healing as he goes forward. 
But I want us to remember that in this time, in this day, in this moment that this passage is happening, that the children of Israel, God's chosen people, are still practicing the rituals and the feasts and the fasts that had been prescribed by God to them in the Old Testament. So fasting is an everyday part of their life. It's a regular practice for God's people at this time, which is why this, this question is brought about in our passage today. And then we know, because we've had the, the sort of the God perspective in reading the scripture, that we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees' hearts are doing all of these things, are following these laws, not to be closer to God, but to be seen and applauded. For what they're doing. They're following the law so closely, but not to observe God's commands to have the spotlight on them. And so this question is now brought to Jesus today from the disciples who are following John the Baptist. In verse 14, it says, John's disciples, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, it's most unlikely that all of the disciples of Jesus never fasted because, again, we know that, that their context and their history would, would call for some time to be fasting. But, but what we've already seen, and from Jesus, right, he fasted 40 days in the wilderness before he was tempted. And so we know that this is a practice that they are participating in, but it has become obvious that Jesus' disciples are not following the same prescribed fasts that the other people are. And we see Jesus giving the answer in three examples, or many parables, if you will, that are full and loaded with meaning. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and the time will come, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, before we get into those three examples that he says and uses, what I want us to first look at, look at is the final phrase of Jesus' answer in verse 15. What does it say? Then they will fast. So I want to begin here again, just in case some might think that fasting is an optional form of spiritual discipline. It's not. Here Jesus is using language, not if, but then. So it's not a question of if they fast, it's a question of really the timing of it, the when will they fast. Jesus says that when the groom is taken away, his followers were fast. He doesn't say they might fast. He says they will fast. They will fast. Let me just say, I don't enjoy fasting. So you can take a breath. If you think you've got this pious pastor that is just, oh, let's just chafe and chafe and chafe and take it all down and just eat rice and water and be on Survivor and, and do all that. No, I'm not excited about fasting. Let's just be honest. I love Anything and everything that my stomach and my mind can come up with, I want it. 
except chocolate. You guys know that about me. I don't know why chocolate is, is just revolting to my taste buds, but and my kids think I'm weird, and if you think I'm weird, that's, that's fine. Uh, I, I'm good with it. I, I've lived with it 40 years. I, I'm okay. Um, but here's the thing. Fasting just for the sake of abstaining from food is not what we're talking about here. A lot of people today, you'll see this all the time, use intermittent fasting as a form of, of weight loss, right? You've heard this. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, if that's something that works for you, absolutely. But that's not the kind of fasting that he's talking about here. Yes, fasting is withholding food or something, something that is distracting us from Jesus. But the kind of fasting that is in question today is not just about the practice of taking something away. Because if our fasting and what he is speaking of here, if it is devoid of a spiritual understanding, it really means nothing. It's just another practice that we can be involved in. Fasting is a refocusing of the heart through the means of withholding food or something else from us. Fasting is not about food at all. Really, fasting, again, is about our heart. And that's the purpose of it. That's why Jesus calls us to do that. And we see here in these verses that we, they point directly to why we fast. And Jesus even says this, that, that fasting is not needed if the bridegroom is present. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then, then they will fast. Here, here's a definition for us that I, that I sort of comprised and came up with as far as what is fasting. I, I said fasting is our expression that we are longing to be with Jesus. And we are reminding ourselves that our greatest need is fulfilled in Him. That's the whole point of why we fast. Fasting is not an if. It's a win. So Pastor John Piper, he suggested this. He said, when you look at the early church in the book of Acts, he sees it as the church being held up by a three-legged stool. So I, I, I work better in visual, so I've got a visual for you to kind of look at it. So if you think about the top pedestal or the seat portion as the church... And he, he, again, he's looking at how the church was structured and built in the, in the book of Acts. He said, if you have that base there at the top, the three legs that the church is standing on is worship, prayer, and fasting. And in a sermon back in the 90s, here is how he described what he meant. He said, in our day, there has been reawakening in worship around the world. And I think we would agree with that. We see that as, as sort of something that's coming out of the church. And he said, we've also seen a reawakening in prayer around the world. But not yet does there seem to be a reawakening in fasting, except in some remote places overseas. And so here's what he said. He said, I asked... Might God not ordain that his fullest blessings will come to the church when we prevail in prayer with the intensity of fasting? He said, that's what I think fasting is at heart. 
It's an intensification of prayer. It is a physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence. We hunger for you to come in power. He said, it's a cry of our body that says, I really mean it, Lord. This much I hunger for you. Would this be our cry for our church in this coming year? That we hunger for him. But that first example that he uses in verse 15 is this example of a wedding. He uses this bridegroom language. And if you know anything about Jewish tradition and marriage, it's more than what we do. We have a a rehearsal dinner the night before. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. But the celebration is really just either one hour, two hours, a half a day, however long the reception lasts. But we basically set aside one day for a marriage celebration, not as it was with the Jewish tradition. They set aside a whole week. And all the fathers in here with daughters said, oh man. (laughs) But a whole week they set aside for this marriage celebration. And during this week, tradition said that the bride and the groom were exempt from keeping the normal fasts that were going on during that time. So the bride specifically was exempt from the Day of Atonement fast. And then the groom was exempt from reciting the Shema on his wedding night. And Jesus knew that when he used this example of a wedding, that the reference was going to go off into the people hearing this. And they knew, he knew that they would understand all of these processes. And he, they would immediately know that exceptions were given because of this Celebration. They knew the rules. But there's more. And I don't want us to miss this. In this verse, Jesus not only is using the wedding celebration as an example, he is directly comparing himself as the bridegroom. Which, as all who were hearing this example would know how much meaning that held. We might read it and just sort of overlook it. But if you understand what Jesus is saying here, he is declaring himself that he is the bridegroom. And Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6 tells us that it says, Indeed, your husband, the bridegroom, is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit. A wife of one's youth when she is rejected. He's acclaiming the promise spoken of in Isaiah is of him. And we're going to see this later on in the New Testament. John's gospel makes reference to this bridegroom. Even in Revelation, we see Jesus being referred to as the bridegroom. But in this passage, Jesus is outright declaring that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if fasting is defined as longing for Him to come, why would they fast if the chosen one is with them? 
And that's his entire argument. If fasting is about us longing for the chosen one, if fasting is about us being with and connected more and pursuing God, he's looking around and go, I'm here. They don't need to fast. I'm with them. In verses 16 and 17, no one patches an old garment with an unshrunk cloth because the patch will pull away and make the garment tear worse. And then he explains, no one puts new wine into old wine skins and, and otherwise the skins burst and the wine spill out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wine skins and are both preserved. I don't know if any of you just find yourself on this like YouTube or video hole. But man, I almost got caught in one thinking and learning about new wineskins in the process and what the, I had to stop myself. But if you want to, man, you can go deep dive on that whole process of why they put new wineskins and, and didn't put new wine in old wineskins. It's fascinating. We're not gonna we're not gonna do that today. But it's out there. You can find it. But here's the point he's making. Jesus did not come to patch up. Or to reinstate the Jewish way of worship. He came and he did fulfill the law. And in fulfilling it, he establishes with us a new covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer follow the law. But what it does mean is that following the law is no longer our way to righteousness. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. He gives us His righteousness, a righteousness that we could never earn on our own. And in this new freedom, we're called to pursue Him through means of fasting. Again, to remind ourselves that our greatest need can only be fulfilled in Him. This is why you can't patch old clothes with a new patch. This is why you can't force new wine into old wineskins. It won't work. And so if you are still trying to live by the letter of the law to earn your righteousness this morning, let me tell you, your clothes are going to tear and your wineskins are going to burst. And all your work is going to be left spilled out on the ground. Jesus came and flipped this old system on its head. And when you have to look to Jesus as your source for righteousness, you can no longer look to your own works. Right? But that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so upset about. They were so good at following the law. They were so good at making themselves look right and perfect because of all the ways that they had found to follow the law. And then here comes Jesus and says, all of that means nothing if you don't put your hope and faith and trust in me. That's why they hated him. That's why they killed him. But as Jesus was explaining this, we see these interruptions. So let's look at the first one. Verse 18, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came up and knelt down before him, saying, my daughter just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. 
So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. So that's the first interruption. And in my studying this week, what I learned is, you know, the the text just says one of the leaders. But actually, this man that was coming to Jesus was the most important, highest esteemed leader in the synagogue. He was responsible for oversight of all synagogue worship and all synagogue ministry. He was one of, of the most important decision makers for the synagogue. And what do we see him doing? Kneeling at the feet of Jesus. One of the most powerful men kneeling at Jesus' feet. That is a mighty act of reverence and humbleness for this leader who holds so much power to kneel. And as he is kneeling, he is proclaiming his faith that Jesus can raise his dead daughter with just one touch of his hand. What a statement. What a humbling picture for us. This man laid his reputation on the line. Knowing everyone in and around the synagogue would see his actions, yet he still bowed down and knelt at Jesus' feet to proclaim his power. And then as Jesus is going to the leader's house to deal with his daughter, we see another interruption. It says, just verse 20, Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. This woman knew the power that Jesus had. And she was willing to do whatever it took to position herself in order to at least get close enough to Jesus to simply touch the tassel of his garment. Now, if you read this account in Mark and Luke, you're going to see a lot more detail. You're going to see a lot more information given. And what we find out is that this woman has been suffering from this issue for decades. She has not only been suffering, she has spent all of her money for over those decades trying to be cured from doctors with no avail. She's completely spent. She's completely wiped out. Can you imagine the defeat that she must have felt? Can you imagine how tired she was? And some of you, I've I've talked to you in this room from experiencing blood loss, from that, that type of ailment you have to deal with, and you know how it just drains you. Twelve years is what Luke tells us she's been suffering from this. How exhausted must she be? She had every reason to just accept her fate, give up. She was out of money. She was out of answers. She was out of hope. But she heard Jesus. She heard of Jesus 
and the power that he held and how he was healing and preaching and teaching throughout the region. And she heard that he was the Messiah. She believed what that the prophets foretold was true, that he is the son of God. And if she could just get to him, if she could just get close enough, not even to talk to him, not even to grab his hand, just to touch his garment as he passed by, she knew she would be healed. Go back this week and read and mark and Luke in this account because the details are phenomenal how the disciples tell him like when he turns around and says, who touched me? And they're like, what do you mean? There's people everywhere. Go back and read that account. Matthew decides to just keep it short and sweet, so we will too. Verse 22 says, Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Look at this. She didn't let her past failure. She didn't let her past just complete giving up. Hearing no, we can't help you. No, we can't help you. After paying and spending all of the money she had for doctors to continue to tell her, no, we have no answer. No, we have no hope. No, we have no way to help you. She didn't let that keep her from pursuing Jesus. She didn't let what she had been told keep her from pursuing Jesus. She didn't let, listen, what she was seeing right in front of her, in her body, keep her from pursuing Jesus. When she was on her way to touch him, she still had this issue. When she was on her way in pursuit of him, she still had this issue. Even though she didn't have anything left, she knew she had Jesus. And then after Jesus heals her, we see him finally make it to the synagogue leader's home. Look at verse 23 and 24. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. And look what he said, leave. Because this girl is not dead, but asleep. And what did they do? They laughed at him. The people gathered at this house could not see past what was right in front of them. And that's easy for us to do. It's easy for us to look at what has happened and to see what is in front of us and go, this is just my lot. But those people gathered at the house couldn't see past what had happened. They couldn't see past the fact that this girl was dead. And so they laughed at Jesus. But it didn't stop Jesus. And so what did he do? He just sent him away. Leave. This girl's not dead. She's asleep. Look at verse 25 and 26. And after the crowd had been put aside, he went in, took her by the hand, 
And the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout the whole area. So you may be wondering, what do these three things that we've looked at today have in common? How do they fit together? What was the purpose of looking at those three accounts? How does questions about fasting and healing a suffering woman and a dead girl being raised, how does that all fit together? The first thing that we must see in the common thread throughout this whole, these three instances, is that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is the Son of God. And when he spoke of himself as the bridegroom, when confronted by John's disciples, he says, I am who you've been told about. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you may be thinking, well, yeah, that's a given. We know that. Why? That's why we're here, right? If we didn't understand that, why would we even come today? Before we quickly pass by this simple truth, here's what I want to ask you. A very simple question. Before you simply say, yeah, I know that Jesus is the Son of God. Ask this to yourself. Does my pursuit of Jesus look the same as the synagogue leader and the woman with the issue of blood? If I truly believe that he is the son of God, when I look at my life right now, am I pursuing Jesus with the same fervency and the same resolve that we see these two people coming to him and saying, you hold all power and I come to you. We see a woman who is completely distraught in full pursuit of him knowing who he is and what he can do. Are we doing the same? Does our life look like that much pursuit of Jesus is in it? Now, I want to be clear. We know this to be true. It is God's pursuit of us that brings us salvation, right? We, we, we know that. We have taught that. We know that our eyes are blind. We cannot see the truth. It is his revelation to our spirit that brings us salvation. So don't confuse me. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I want to know is that if, if you are professing to be a follower of Jesus, look at your life right now and honestly ask yourself, does my pursuit of Jesus look like those who we read about today? Does my pursuit of Jesus look like those that we read about today? JJ, you can come on up. Because I think if we're honest, and if we're truly honest with ourselves, I think there's elements of our pursuit of Jesus that we've forgotten. Do we truly believe that he is the bridegroom? 
Do we truly believe that He is the only one who can fulfill our needs? And we can easily say it. But do our lives reflect it? That's the question we have to ask this morning. Ask yourself this question. And again, well, I, I caveated in the beginning that I wasn't going to take role. But ask yourself, did you take time to pray and fast last week? I, I don't need your answer. I, it's, you're not responsible to me with that answer. You're responsible to him. Did you take time last week to pray and fast. And if you did, praise God because I know that the Lord heard you and I pray that he felt near to you. But if you didn't, will you ask yourself why not? Has your hunger for him waned because you've been feeding off other things? Listen, again, I'm not trying to shame you. That's not why I'm asking these questions or asking you to ask these questions. I simply want to shepherd you towards him and for you to not be a wandering sheep. Because I care. I care about your pursuit of Jesus. I'm not up here for me, guys. I am up here to shepherd your hearts towards Jesus. That's why I'm asking these questions. <laughs> Do we believe that our prayers matter? We can say it. We can say prayer changes things. We, we can use that quip. But if we truly believe that prayer does change things, then I would imagine that we would see a different response when we ask for us as a church to come together and pray. Begging God to do miraculous things in our city. <laughs> or have we become like the flute players and the lamenting crowds that we read about today? And when we think about Jesus being able to breathe life again into things that are dying, do we just laugh because our faith has been so weakened by what we see? I believe as we step into and walk into 2023 that God is faithful. And I believe that the Jesus that we read about and heard about today is just as powerful then as he is today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I believe that he still has plans for Antioch First Baptist Church. 
I will not let what I see around me determine what I believe is possible through the power of Jesus. Now, I'm not calling us dead. We are not dead. There is life and the Spirit is working in hearts here. So please don't mishear me. But do we truly believe as a church that the breath of God can blow through this place and blow through this city and cause us to be used for His glory until he returns. I believe it. And because I believe it, I'm going to ask hard questions sometimes. Again, not to shame you, but to shepherd you. I do believe that God is sovereign and he will work and do as he pleases. But as we spoke about this last week and as we've seen in our passage today, we live in this tension of his sovereignty and our responsibility of pursuit. And what I believe he is asking us today is to pursue him. To pursue him with a pursuit that looks like that we believe that he truly is all-powerful. That we truly believe that his spirit transforms hearts and lives. That we truly believe that if we have been offered and received salvation, then anyone can be offered and receive salvation. He can breathe life back into ourselves, our homes, and our church. I believe it. Will you believe it too? This morning, if you are hearing of this truth of his righteousness being given to you for the first time and something on the inside of you is going off, that's his grace. That's his grace welcoming you to his family. That's his grace and his spirit working within you saying, I was lost, but now I've been found. He did that for you. And so if you have not professed him as Lord of your life this morning, if you understand for the first time hearing it going, he really is the son of God. May we rejoice together that you have been brought home. And again, if you've made that profession of faith, of all the questions that I've put before us today, would you spend just a moment looking at your pursuit of Christ? Maybe you need to repent and you won't be welcomed with shame or condemnation. You'll be welcomed with grace. Maybe you need in this moment to ask the Spirit's help because you've tried to do it on your own. You've tried to set up all these ways, but you know that you're just doing it as the Pharisees and the Sadducees did just for approval. Within this moment, would you repent of that and ask the Spirit to guide you in your pursuit of the Son of God. Let's take just a moment and then we'll come back together.